Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Well, good morning, friends. We are in Proverbs chapter 20. As we continue our study through the book of Proverbs, you may recall that uh, particular devotional that I enjoy, Laws for Heaven for Life on Earth, that uh, makes its way through Proverbs. And that's indeed what we're doing. We're here uh, to consider these laws for heaven for life on earth. You know, there is a way that seems right unto a man, and there is a way that is right unto a man. And that's the word of God, and we're going to dig into it. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would minister to our hearts. You would draw us, Lord God, uh, into your presence as we consider your word. Lord, that uh, our hearts would in many ways let down so that we might receive from you and, and those areas of our lives that need to be brought into refinement by the pure holy word of God. Uh, we pray that that is exactly what will occur. Um, so speak to our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Uh, amen. I encourage you, we have uh, about 25 of our youth that are on a youth retreat right now, um, so pray for the youth leaders uh, is essentially how that works, um, but uh, we're excited about what the Lord uh, will do with those folks, uh, and they'll be coming back around lunchtime, so uh, pray that that all that goes well for them. As I said, we are in Proverbs chapter 20. Our, our goal was to make our way through the whole chapter, but I don't think that's going to happen, um, but we'll get as far as we can, starting in verse 1. It says this, wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Now, this is not the last time that Solomon is going to address the issue of alcohol uh, in the book of Proverbs. And certainly we know we've had instances where we've talked about alcohol and consumption of alcohol in other Bible studies here on Sunday mornings. And so we know the scripture talks about it in various places here. This is the first time that Solomon brings up the issue of alcohol. He he gives a very strong comment on alcohol in chapter 23. So we'll spend a little more time. There's about six or seven verses in chapter 23 where he digs into it, but we'll, we'll take a cursory look at it now. He says this, and he begins by saying, wine is a mocker and strong drink is a brawler. Now the idea is that wine or strong drink changes a man or woman. You have enough of it and it changes a man or woman and a man or a woman who previously wasn't a mocker becomes one. A man or woman who previously wasn't a brawler becomes one. Matthew Henry said this somewhat whimsically. He said, when the wine is in, the wit is out. When the wine is in, the wit is out. Think about it for a second because you're like, I'm not sure. Okay. All right. Maybe you've been drinking some wine this morning. Uh, But when the wine is in, the wit is out. You don't think as clearly. And more often than not, that is the case with many people. Now, here's the challenge. You know what I wish? I wish the Bible just simply came out and said, don't drink. Just don't do it. But it doesn't really come out and say that. It's easier for me. It's like as parents, we want to just give our kids rules. Follow these rules and you'll be good to go. But the Bible doesn't necessarily work that way in in all instances. Now, the Bible does very clearly say that drunkenness is a sin. It calls it debauchery. And so, and you don't know what that means, so it's bad. All righty. But in Ephesians chapter 5, it says this, do not get drunk with wine, which is debauchery. Drunkenness is a sin that most certainly should be avoided. But what about drinking in moderation? Is drinking in moderation forbidden? Well, again, the Bible does not specifically come out and say that it is. What the Bible does do 
is point the believer to the importance of exercising wisdom, caution, and love when interacting with wine and strong drink. Wisdom and caution and love, both for yourself, wisdom and caution, and love, wisdom, caution, and love for others as well. So for instance, in the New Testament, it talks about the weaker brother, so as to not stumble the weaker brother. And so the Bible approaches the consumption of alcohol, particularly in the book of Proverbs, by pointing people to the natural consequences of drink that often occur in people's lives. Now, to be sure, not everyone that has a glass of wine or some other type of alcohol is automatically going to descend into drunkenness. I know that is certainly not the case. They're not automatically going to become a drunk or or something, some other term that we might use. In fact, the majority are not so deceived that drink a little bit here and a little bit there. Many, however, and a great many, however, are deceived and do descend into that particular place. And I would venture to, to say, if you were to ask those that have descended into a lifestyle of drunkenness, if they ever intended to sink into that particular condition when they began to drink, did you ever intend to become a drunk as you have uh, developed into? To a man, they would answer, well, of course not. Had I realized, I would have never picked it up to begin with. And so in that way, then, not only does alcohol create a mocker or a strong brawler, but in that way, then, it becomes a mocker and strong drink becomes a brawler. That is that it sets itself up against the individual, that it tells the individual, you'll be okay. Lots of people drink and they don't have problems. Go ahead, try it, and it begins to mock. They'll tell you, the alcohol, you see the commercials, that if you drink our beer, you'll be slim and svelte, and you'll have lots of friends, and you'll be jumping into pools, and it'll be great. They tell you, if you drink our beer, you will be the most interesting man in the world. But the reality, instead of being slim and svelte, you often develop a beer gut. All right, I'm not looking at anybody. All right, here. Some of you are looking at me. This is not from beer. All right, it's from my wife's good cooking. Instead of being the most interesting man in the world, what oftentimes happens? You become that guy that's saying and doing all kinds of weird things, and people start sort of backing away from you. And so the way of wisdom is this. Rather than the Bible coming out and saying, just don't do it. It's like Adam and Eve. Like I, I have this mindset of Adam and Eve where Adam was told, you're not allowed to consume this particular fruit. And then Eve, you may recall, a little later, the serpent is tempting her. And she says, we're not allowed to eat it. We're not allowed to touch it. We're not allowed to go near it. I think that Adam, I don't know if this is true, but sort of just cut corners and said, don't even touch it. Already, because it was just easier. Let's just put a rule on it and don't do it. But the Bible doesn't really do that with these types of things, some of these types of what we'll call gray areas. And so the way of wisdom is this, whether it's alcohol or anything, the way of wisdom is to approach it with our eyes wide open, to understand these things before we go into them, to know that many before us and many among us have become ensnared by that which you are now considering consuming. And so what the wise individual does then is approaches wine, approaches strong drink, alcohol, etc., knowing that many before them thought they would be fine, only to quickly discover that they were not fine. And so what the wise individual does is moves forward in this area with extreme caution. And so my exhortation to you, my understanding of what Solomon would say to each of us, is move forward in this area with extreme caution. Certainly if you're underage, The scripture also says to obey the law of the land. 
And so that's where you begin. You obey the law of the land. But for those of us that are older, and if we, we want a glass of drink when we're having particular meals, I think they t- say this wine is good for this meal and it makes it taste better or, or whatever. I don't know how that all works or if it is even true or they're just trying to push more wine uh, at their restaurant. I don't know how that works, but move forward with caution and exercise wisdom in this area, both for your own life, but also because there are others that are observing weaker brothers, as the scripture describes them, and sisters that could be led astray by your liberty. And you don't want to lead anyone astray. The way of love is to not do so. Does that make sense, friends? We'll talk about it more. So come back in about four weeks and we'll really dig into it. Uh, Verse two, it says, the terror of a king is like the growling of a lion and whoever provokes him to anger forfeits his life. Now, many times already in Proverbs, We've learned that the ruler is God's servant, that our kings, our queens, our princes, our presidents, our congresspeople, all those folks, that the ruler is God's servant given for our good or given for the good of those he rules over. So in in the book of Romans, I'll read it again. It says this, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. What would you have? No fear of the one of authority. Do what is good. You'll receive his approval. Verse four, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, then you're going to suffer, you won't suffer the sword in vain. So go- governing authorities are given to us for our good. So to resist then those in power ultimately is to bring consequences upon ourselves. So God put these people to help us, then we resist them. How are we getting the help? That makes sense? And so ultimately, to, it will bring consequences upon ourselves. So again, to quote Paul in, in that Romans verse, he says, Would you have no fear of the one of authority? Then do what is good and you'll receive his approval. And so here we have this verse, the terror of a king is like a growling of a lion. Whoever provokes him to anger forfeits his life. You don't do what you're supposed to do in society. Don't be surprised when the consequences for that decision come upon yourself. Verse three, it's an honor for a man to keep aloof from strife, but every fool will be quarreling. An honorable person makes a point of keeping themselves from unnecessary strife keeping themselves from unnecessary strife. What an important thing for us to hear. I I read my newspaper on my phone, and at the bottom they have comments for people comment on the articles and things like that. I can't believe the fights people get in over the things that they get in. It's unbelievable to me. And the things that they say in those comment sections, of course, there I am reading it, you know, oh my, look at that. And then the comebacks at each other and the horrible things. I just wish these people could be brought together. Just sit together and you say that to his face and see what he says to you. It's remarkable. But the things that people fight over and argue over and get in uh, unnecessary strife regarding, what Solomon says here is an honorable person makes it a point of keeping themselves from unnecessary strife. I'm not going to get involved in things that I don't need to be involved in. A fool, on the other hand, isn't happy unless he's quarreling with anyone. And I think, what if we applied that thinking to every social media post that we made? And before we start typing in our response to that particular thing, or before we posted that particular thing, it would weed out so much of the nonsense. I'm not on social media anymore because it just made me angry. And I I would go throughout my day mad at people. Some of you. I'd be angry with reading these things here. And I, beca- I found, by turning it off of my, my phone, where I have access to it, that I was just so much more peaceful. No more little quarrels, no more little fights. It was just a good feeling, and I began to love people better. Uh, 
So Solomon makes it clear, look, you want to be an honorable man or woman, make it your goal to avoid unnecessary controversy. Earlier in chapter 17, he said this, the beginning of strife is like letting out water, so quit before the quarrel breaks out, because very quickly strife can get out of control. Just like a little, little hole in a, a dam of some sorts, if it's not dealt with there and you don't stop it from escalating, the water's going to come rushing forth and things will quickly get out of control. And the person that meddles, one commentator referred to this person as a controversialist. The person that is a controversialist always wants to have a controversy, a fight, an argument, or something, a good debate, or whatever it may be on these issues. Solomon here is saying, that person really is a fool. If that's the pattern of their life and that they're always, always about that and let's have a good fight or whatever, they're creating for themselves needless frustration and difficulty. Is that really what you want your life to be about? To needlessly be frustrated and going through struggle all the time? There's plenty of frustrations already out there. Why bring more into our lives by engaging in these quarrels? The honorable man or woman, they demonstrate their honor by stopping the quarrel before it starts. And you and I, we would be wise to heed Solomon's words in that regard. So let the Lord search out your heart and how you respond to issues on that particular issue. Verse 4 says this, The sluggard does not plow in the autumn. He will seek at harvest and have nothing. Verse 13 is similar, so we'll look at it now. It says, love not sleep lest you come to poverty. Open your eyes and you will have plenty of bread. What a great verse to say to your kids as they're struggling to get up or your husband or your wife is struggling to get up. Now, of course, sleep is fine and sleep is necessary. And we've seen other places in our study here where you need to just slow down and stop and get your rest to be replenished and strengthened for the day. But the admonition in verse 13 in particular is to love not sleep to the point where you never get out of bed. And there are some that are in that particular guard. So that which was good and necessary, sleep, has crossed over into slothfulness or sluggardliness which Solomon addresses here in the verse, verse 4, where he says, the sluggard does not plow in the autumn, he will seek at harvest and have nothing. The sluggard will always find an excuse, a reason for why they can't go out there and do what it is they're supposed to do. In chapter 26, the excuse of the sluggard is, well, there's a lion in the road. There's a lion out there. I can't go out there now. There's a lion, I'll die. And, but again, I mentioned this before, everybody else somehow manages Everybody else somehow figures out how to deal with that lion that may be out there and get the job done, if indeed there is a lion out there. Here, the excuse is essentially that it's too cold. The sluggard, he doesn't plow in the autumn. Ooh, well, it's chilly in the autumn. I want to stay here by my fire, put my blanket on, and just rest. It's too cold that it's out there. It's not too cold out there. It's chilly. Autumn is chilly oftentimes, but it's not too cold. If it were too cold, nobody would be out there plowing the ground because the ground would be frozen over and you wouldn't be able to. And so here this person comes up with the excuse that it's too cold and yet they're the only one that's not out there. Now the second part of the verse is significant also because it's a, essentially this is what it, it implies. Without the plowing, there will never be planting and without the planting, there will never be a harvest. And so unless you get out there and deal with the difficulty of the circumstances, that now, then you will not experience the harvest that you need to experience in order to sustain your life and your family and so on. So if you do not plow now, you will not reap then. If you're idle in the planting season, you're going to be hungry in the harvest. 
And again, to quote Matthew Henry, he said this, he that will not submit to the labor of plowing must submit to the shame of begging. Now for us as, we're not farmers, I should say, as non-farmers, I don't think any of us in here are are presently farmers or things like that, though there are farms in our area. But for many of us, we're non-farmers. Is there anything here for us? All right, I got it. If I get a farm, I promise I'll go out in the autumn and I'll plow or whatever it may be. I do think there's stuff for us here, even if we never step foot on a farm. And that is this, this little phrase here, present conduct determines future conditions. Present conduct determines future conditions. So what we do now will ultimately determine our conditions then. And so ultimately, all of us are living in the plowing time, so to speak in which the toil we give ourselves to this day is going to impact what our life is going to look like five years, 10 years, 20 years, eternity in so many ways. Now, I think that applies to all of us. I think it especially applies to young people because you have 60, 70 years, if the Lord allows, ahead of you, whereas some of us only have 10, 15, 20 years that are ahead of us. We should know this. The plowing times is often difficult. No one's denying that the plowing time is difficult, that it's tiring, that it's a little chilly. I don't want to be out there. I'd rather be inside sitting and reading a book. Remember, in this day in particular, we're not talking about climbing on a tractor. Nowadays, you can get on a tractor and you're inside a little cab there and it's heated and you've got your satellite radio on there. And you're like, it's a piece of cake. I'm having a time here. That's not the instance that we're talking about here. In that time, we're talking about a person grabbing their particular tool, and going out there and tilling the ground by their sweat and by exercising their own muscles. And of course, again, it would be far more comfortable just to stay inside of the house. But for all of us, young people, old people, whatever, remember that the easy road is generally, oftentimes, the wrong road. The easy road, yeah, everyone wants to go down that particular path. It's nice and wide and it's comfortable. But it's the narrow road, oftentimes, that we're called to go down. And so in everything we do, particularly in things that are worth doing, there are always going to be obstacles in the way. This is not heaven. You don't live in heaven. You live here on the earth, and it's a fallen world that we live in. And so there's always going to be difficulties here on the earth. And anyone that turns back at the first sign of obstacles is never going to accomplish anything of real value. And so you've got to plug through those difficulties. That's the plowing time. But you plow through the difficulties in the plowing time and you reap a great harvest in the harvest time that is there. And so whether we're talking about, for people that are still taking tests and things like that, whether we're talking about studying now so that we'll be ready for that exam later, this is the plowing time, this is the harvest time. Whether we're talking about building your nest egg now so that you'll have something when you retire later, sacrificing now in the plowing time so that you can experience the harvest later. Whether we're talking about dealing with the hard places in our hearts now. Oftentimes we work with young couples that are about, or old couples that are about to get married and they go through a period of premarital counseling. And that premarital counseling sits them down and it begins to get them to think about things that they'd prefer not to think about. Because those of us on the outside watching that maybe have been married for a little while, we know it's those things that are going to cause an issue in your marriage five years from now. When the cute, lovey feelings, you know, have all evaporated and you can't stand each other anymore, it's these things that are going to rise to the surface. So you better deal with them now so that they don't rise up then and sabotage your marriage. 
Well, most people don't feel like, no, look, we're happy. We love each other. Look how handsome he is. You know, and these sorts of things, do we really have to think about these hard things now? You better, you better think about them now in the plowing time, and that'll reap a harvest later on. Make sense? And so do these things apply to us? Even though we're not farmers, yes. So don't let laziness derail your, the future conditions that the Lord would have for you. Uh, verse 5 says this. I got a little worked up. Excuse me. It says, Ooh. The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. Again, as we've seen, the wise individual has plenty to say, but often says very little. Whereas you can't shut the fool up, right? The fool, I want to give my opinion on everything. I want to talk about everything or whatever. And so you're constantly hearing that person, but they don't really have anything to say of value. And then the wise individual sitting there has plenty to say, but doesn't. So the man of understanding will demonstrate their understanding. The man or the woman of understanding will demonstrate that by seeking out truly wise counsel. And so you could turn your TV on and everyone's spouting off information. You could go to a gathering of people and there's going to be voices all over the place. But if you're truly wise, you're going to seek out the individual that has something wise to say themselves. And notice there, it says he will draw it out. The man of understanding will draw it out of the person. Again, the verse says, a purpose in a man's heart is like deep water. A man of understanding will draw it out. The noisiest in a crowd are often not the best to be listening to. And again, just because someone is constantly talking or even loudly talking doesn't mean they have anything worth hearing. But the one that has something worth hearing is typically the one that is quiet, taking everything in, formulating his or her thoughts, giving themselves time to think it through so they have something worth saying. That's the person you should turn to and say, hey, what do you think on this matter? And that's where you're going to find that wisdom. And so by asking that question and asking good questions, you're drawing that wisdom out. You'll be the better person for it uh, in doing so. Verse 6 says, Many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, but a faithful man who can find. Now, a number of verses ahead of us in this chapter in our study today is going to speak to a similar idea as what this verse is talking about. Uh, to borrow Jesus' words, essentially what we're seeing here, a tree is known by its fruit. Not, no, not what it says about itself, but what it demonstrates about itself. And here, Solomon writes that a person can proclaim how kind and how loving they are. He says, many a man proclaim his own steadfast love, but it's a person's faithful actions that demonstrate how true that statement is. I love you, brother. I'll be here for you. If you need anything, you call me. Then you call him, ooh, my favorite TV show's on that I can't make it. Sorry. I thought you would be here no matter what. I thought you were proclaiming your steadfast love for me. But a faithful man who can find, a faithful man's going to demonstrate how true their statements are with their actions. Because, again, anyone can say it, but it's a person's life that proves it out. Now look at verse 7, because I think verse 7 is the key to verse 6. Verse 7 says, the righteous who walks in his integrity, blessed are his children after him. Now, it's talking about a different topic, but it uses that key word there, integrity. And I would suggest to you, integrity is the key to a verse 6. Anybody can say it, but it's a truly faithful one that can live it. 
And a person that is truly living it is a man or a woman that is walking in integrity. They're living a life that matches their words. They're the same person if they're all alone or if the whole world is watching. They're a person of integrity. And notice here, Solomon says, by living a life of integrity, that's the way that you can bless those that will come after you. And it it goes on there in the verse, it says, blessed are his children after him. And I think about the things that parents will do to be a blessing to their children. I think all of us, we want our kids uh, to do well. We want them to succeed. In many ways, we hope that they'll do better than maybe we've done in this life. And so we kind of give them all the tools to prepare them so that they can live sort of a blessed life. And so some people will buy their kids every one of the latest gadgets so they don't have to go through the difficulty of being the kid in school that says, oh, I don't have it. My parents hate me and they didn't buy it for me, you know, or things like that. And so we want to bless, and I'll put it in quotations, our children by getting them the latest gadgets. Or we make all sorts of sacrifices and we scrimp and we save so we can send them to the best schools so that they can get the best education so that when they get out of there, they can live the best life possible and then they will be blessed. We do all these things thinking this is how we bless our children. And I don't think those things are necessarily bad, but notice what Solomon makes clear. What Solomon says is the one sure way and path to blessing your children is for you to live a life that is marked by honesty and integrity. So you want to be a blessing to your children? I'm sure we all do. The one sure way that you can bless their children, prepare your children, give them a foundation of blessing to build their lives upon is by living a life of honesty and integrity in front of them. If you really want to bless your children, walk in integrity and righteousness. And when you do that, the consequence of that, so to speak, is that your children will live in peace. Your children will have a godly example that they can look at and they can pattern their lives after. And the blessing that is on mom or dad will filter over. As mom and dad are walking in God's ways, God blesses that. That filters over, that overflows over, I should say, spills over into the life of their children. So if you really want to bless your kids, run hard after God. If you really want to bless your kids, run hard after God. That's the best thing you can do for your children. And your kids are noticing that and the overflow will impact their lives as well. Look at verse 8. It says, A king who sits on the throne of judgment winnows all evil with his eyes. The king who sits on the throne of judgment. Now, in this case, it might be helpful for us to replace the word judgment there with an alternative understanding of the verse, other ways that that word is used, and that would be the word justice. So let me read it that way and, and then explain why I've done that. It says, A king who sits on the throne of justice winnows all evil with his eyes. So the king who sits on the, the throne of judgment, that gives us the impression people are off with his head, you know, and these kinds of things. But the idea is what Solomon is trying to communicate is a king that rules and that in his society there will be truth and justice that reigns. That's what it's, it's getting at here. That a good king rules in such a way that righteousness and justice are allowed to thrive. And so what the king then does is he winnows righteousness from evil. He separates righteousness from evil, just as a farmer would winnow the wheat from the chaff. So the king, if he is going to be a great king, is going to use his power so that good might reign within his kingdom and that evil will be promptly dealt with, judged, 
there will be justice in the society. Now, like the farmer, many of us here will never be a king. Although there's this lady that's going to be a princess, like from America. Isn't she from like L.A. or something that she's marrying? Look, I'm not the only one who watches these shows. Come on. I know this is true. There's some girl, some lady. Uh, yeah, Mar- Margul? Megan. All right, Megan. Not Margul? <laughs> That's her last name? Oh, okay. It was an awful first name. Uh, that was indeed the case. Yeah, so here's this girl. She grew up in L.A. or, or did whatever she did, just an average kid. Now she's going to be a princess. And I, I don't know. Will she be a queen someday? Huh? She, uh, you know the story. All right, well, anyway, so maybe you will become a king or a queen, some of you in here, uh, if you find the right husband or wife or whatever to marry into royalty. Um, But more than likely, none of us will be kings. We may be elected leaders, some of us in here. I hope that is indeed the case, that you serve our community in that particular way, if you find yourself there or if you find yourself in any place of authority. Maybe you become the boss at your particular job or you're a mom or a dad and you're in a place of authority in that particular regard. I think there's things for us here. And that is this, that the wise and good leader is going to use that position to promote righteousness. And as a result of that, the people will be blessed. As that person commits himself as a leader, as you commit yourself to ruling, to leading, to guiding others in righteousness and with justice, the people underneath you will be blessed as a result. And so the takeaway there is simply this, sit on the throne of justice and winnow away evil, uh, if you will, so that righteousness might be able to flourish. Quite simple, amen? Verse nine says this, who can say I have made my heart pure and I am clean from sin? Raise your hand if you can say that. Exactly, nobody can say that. None of us can say, I've made my heart pure, I am clean from sin, in our own efforts. It's important for you to add that. In our own efforts, none of us can say that we have made our heart pure. But there is a cleansing that comes through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So none of us can say we have made our hearts clean. But we can say that he has made our hearts clean. That by the work of God's spirit, our lives are being transformed. How remarkable is that? That by the work of God's spirit, as we submit ourselves to his leading in our lives, he changes us. And we're not the people that we were before. And we may not notice it. You may not notice it amongst us. But when people see you, they haven't seen you in five years, ten years, and they interact with you, and they're like, dude, you're different. You've changed. Go back to one of your high school reunions, particularly if you were like a lunatic in high school or whatever. And you go back there, and people are like, hey, man, I'm glad to see you grown up. You've grown up a bit. But they begin to take notice and they hear the way you talk and the things that you say. And that's God's work, his sanctifying work in our lives. As we submit ourselves to him, he changes us. And that is cause for much rejoicing. And we delight in that fact. And the Lord is good to us. Now we return to the idea of integrity. Look at verse 10. It says, unequal weights and unequal measures are both alike and an abomination to the Lord. Unequal weights and unequal measures, same thing. They're an abomination to the Lord. Look at verse 23. It's very similar. Unequal weights are an abomination to the Lord and false scales, they are not good. And so both of those verses are essentially the same. We'll take them together. These weights, these measures, these scales that Solomon is pointing to 
It's reference to the common means of buying and selling in that day, in paying for an item or receiving money for a particular item for a good and a service. And what they would do, the weights, the scales, the measures, all those terms that are used there, those would be used to determine the price of a transaction. And so you're not using cash in that particular society, but you would, you would have a weight for the particular item. This is what we expect it's supposed to be. You'd put your uh, matching payment there. When those balance out, you're good to go. Now, here's the thing. Unethical merchants and consumers would routinely use one set of weights to sell something, which was a little bit heavier, and another set of weight to buy things. And it's both the merchant, the guy behind the counter, and it's the person coming up to the, the customer coming up to the counter. They were all ripping each other off here. And Solomon draws attention to it. Look, you folks, you have one set of weights for that which you're paying and a second set of weights for that which you're receiving. And your intent is to rip the other guy off, the unsuspecting one that you're doing business with, hoping they won't notice. You know who does notice? Jesus. I feel like the church lady. But yes, Jesus takes notice of it. And notice God's desire. God's desire is that our balances, our scales, would be patterned after truth, trustworthiness, righteousness. All of those things that make up his particular character. That's the Lord's desire in those instances. Everything else he says is an abomination. Any transaction you participate in is an opportunity to either honor the Lord or be an abomination to him. And I'll just ask you this question. Is a couple of pennies or a few dollars worth the fellowship that you enjoy with God and other people? I imagine most of us say, well, no, I would not for a couple pennies. All right, a couple bucks? No, not for a couple bucks. Thousand bucks? Ten thousand bucks? Would you sell your fellowship with God and others for a million bucks? Most of you, probably. Well, you shouldn't, all right? The Lord says it's an abomination. Remember the things we've been learning in our study here in another place of the scripture of those things that the Lord finds abominable, to use that term. This is one of those particular things. And so the verse then goes beyond the use of weight and scales in business transactions, but it includes any means of dishonesty employed to take advantage of another person any means of dishonesty employed to take advantage of another person. So again, we come back to this idea of honesty. We come back to this idea of personal integrity. The Lord is honored and pleased when we walk in integrity. He takes notice of that. It puts a smile on his face, so to speak. And again, as Jesus said, a tree is known by its fruit. Look at the next verse, verse 11. Even young trees that aren't even producing full fruit. Even they're known by the tiny fruit that they produce. It says, even a child makes himself known by his acts, whether his conduct is pure and upright. Again, the person that is truly faithful, remember back to verse six, the person that is truly loving is going to live a life that bears that out as true, not just with their words, but with their walk as well. And that's what the Lord is calling us to, people that walk in integrity. Look at verse 12. He says, the hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made them both. So if the Lord has made them both, then certainly they belong to him. And Solomon's unspoken exhortation then is this, that we should give that which belongs to the Lord to the Lord. His exhortation is that if we truly desire to be wise, then we're going to use our eye gate, we're going to use our ear gate, 
to take in those things that are going to be for our benefit and for his glory. Now consider, just consider how much better off you and I be practically. It's like me with the Facebook thing, as I was describing earlier. I was reading these things, scrolling through, and finishing my time there angry and mad. I was better off by deleting it from my phone, and I don't have that anger and that frustration that I was regularly experiencing there. You can do whatever you want with Facebook. I'm not trying to give you subliminal messages about get off Instagram or or something like that. I'm just saying in my life. And so consider how much better off, practically, spiritually, emotionally, each of us would be if we paid a little more careful attention to the things we read, the things we watched, the things we listened to, uh, the things we looked upon. If those things bring honor to the Lord and bring him glory, then clearly they're going to have to be for our benefit. Make sense? And the converse is certainly the case as well. Let's go on. We did verse 13, so let's go on to verse 14. It says, bad, bad, says the buyer. But when he goes away, then he boasts. It sounds like a flea market or a yard sale or a used car dealership where you go in and you work the the system and all this piece of junk. You want how much for that piece of junk? Uh, Well, I thought $2 was fair. $2, I wouldn't give you more than a dollar. Or whatever. My mom, she's something. She would bargain for like a 50 cent thing at a yard sale. And, and there's this one story we always told. And she said to the man, would you take a quarter? And the man said, no. And she was like offended. And I was like, just give the guy 50 cents, you know, so we can get out of here or whatever. She wanted to bargain for a quarter there. Bad, bad, the person says. You want that much for that? I'm not going to pay more than this. Then what do they do? They get in the car And you're like, look at this. They get on their phone. They call people. You won't believe what I just bought. And I was able to get the guy down even more than that, you know. So what are you doing? You're lying to the guy. No, I'm being a good salesman. What does Solomon say? He says, you're playing this system. You're depending on your shrewdness. And, oh, I can trick people. And I can work. And I'm going to go in there. And I'm going to pretend and I'm going to walk out of there with a great deal. Sure you, are. sure, you might walk out of there with a great deal. But again, is your integrity worth it? Is it a worth it to you to get that little bit of a discount? To save a quarter. My mom wasn't being shrewd. She was just being cheap is what she was being in that instance there. Because she had a little change purse with a little change in it. And that's what she would spend at her little flea markets. Uh, she would go every Saturday. She'd call me up. I found something. Do you want it? No. I don't want it. I don't want somebody else's garbage. We, we had these conversations a lot here. Anyway, that being said, the wisest thing that you can do is walk in integrity and honesty in all of your dealings, including your business dealings. It's very important for us to bring Jesus. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, he should impact every area of your lives. And so it's very important for you to bring Jesus into that. I imagine if I sent you to negotiate for our church, you would probably act in a way that is to be honoring to the Lord because you know people are going to associate you with the church. Well, very similarly, in all of our business dealings, we represent Jesus. And we want to honor him. We want to represent him in a way that people, when they say, do you hear he's a Christian? They're going to be like, no way. You want people like, yeah, I can see that. That makes a lot of sense. We want to work with honesty and integrity in our dealing. And if you do that and others do that, pretty soon our whole society is doing that. And isn't that a great place to live? Do your part. I feel like Michael Jackson. Look at the man in the mirror, man. You know, it's a man in the mirror. 
But before you know it, everyone is treating one another equitably. You know why the consumer tries to rip off, the merchant tries to rip off the consumer? Because the consumer tries to rip off the merchant. And it just goes back and forth. And everyone's trying to get over on the other one. What if we all just came together and sang We Are the World or something like that? Let's go to verse 17 because it's a similar verse. It says, bread gained by deceit is sweet to a man, but afterward his mouth is full of gravel. I, I read one place in colonial society that when they would give the prisoners that had uh, been uh, locked away for a particular crime, when they would give them bread, they would bake into the bread some gravel. And so because of this verse, and then the people would eat their bread and be like, it stinks, you know never doing that again or whatever. So I was thinking about bringing that back, um, but I don't know. But anyway, it says bread gained by deceit is sweet to a man, but afterward his mouth will be full of gravel. So whether that literally is happening or not, but that bread that is acquired through deceit, initially it may taste sweet. But Solomon's point is it's only going to taste sweet for a moment. That any pleasure that is derived from how that was acquired is going to be short-lived. Because it's just a matter of time before you'll be found out. Just a matter of time before the guy comes, hey, man, you ripped me off. Sorry, man. You know, you're, or whatever. He's going to come back and he's going to figure it out here. Or you're going to wrestle with a guilty conscience through the whole process. And so it may initially start very sweet, but soon enough you're going to be like, why did I do that? I hope I don't get called. What if they come and get me? What if somebody rips me off? And all these kinds of things. And it's as if you're consuming gravel there. Alexander McLaren, he wrote this. It's kind of lengthy, so let me read it to you. He said, we are tempted to think that a deed done is a deed done with. And to grasp at momentary pleasure and ignore its abiding consequence. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he reap. The seed may long lie dormant, but the green shoots will appear in due time. The sower has to become the reaper, and the reaper has to eat of the bread made from the product of the long past sowing. I know that was a little bit lengthy, but hopefully you get the idea. What we sow, that will we reap. And the sower, if we're acquiring our bread by deceit, we're going to have to reap and we're going to have to consume that bread that was based on that particular deception. And so wisdom then suggests that as much as possible, you and I, we take into account the whole scope of our actions before we commit our actions. Oftentimes, I'll deal with that when I get there. That's a mistake. Rather, take the whole scope of the actions into view. Walk that path down, if you will, in your mind to see where this leads you. So the allure, for instance, give an example, of that illicit relationship. As you're allured to my heart, oh my gosh, I haven't felt this way in so many years. Walk that path down. See where that path takes you when you get to the end of that thing. Take notice of and experience the heartache and the brokenness and the alienation that is at the end of that particular road, even though right now it doesn't feel like that at all. Walk it out. Where does it lead? We would all be the wiser if we gave greater thought to the end result of our present actions. Solomon's suggestion to us there, or his exhortation to us there in verse 17. Go back to verse 15, which we skipped over. It says, there is gold and abundance of costly stones. Excuse me, there is gold and abundance of costly stones, but the lips of knowledge are a precious jewel. You know this, the greater the quantity of something, the less valuable it is. That's why 
uh, or the, excuse me, vice versa. The lesser the quality of something, the greater the value is. That's why things like gold and silver, things like precious stones, that's why they're so valuable because of their scarcity. So if scarcity is indeed the measure of something's value, notice what Solomon says here. He says that the lips of knowledge are far more scarce than gold and costly stones. They're far more valuable, therefore. That then is what we should give ourselves to. If you, you want to go out like a gold miner and you want to rush to California in the 1840s so you can get gold because it is so scarce, but there it's so present and I can have it. If that's what you want to give yourselves to, give yourselves then to possess and acquire wisdom. And so if somebody were to offer us wisdom or money, that which each of us should want to receive or go after should be wisdom. And I think you see this in Psalm 119, the author of that chapter, he says this, the law of your mouth, he's speaking to the Lord, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver. Lord, he says, I'd rather learn wisdom from you than to acquire all sorts of wealth. And I think many of us here, we have to reevaluate and reprioritize in our lives what we run after. Because most of us, we are given to the opportunity for great amounts of gold or wealth and some forth. And we don't value wisdom higher than those things. And so allow the Lord to speak to us on that. Verse 16 says, Take a man's garment when he has put up security for a stranger. Hold it in pledge when he puts up security for foreigners. A few more verses here today. Now Solomon has many times talked about this idea of putting up security for another person, co-signing a loan for another person. Look, if they can't pay the debt, I'll step in and I'll pay the debt. Solomon has made it very clear. He thinks such an idea is foolishness. He says, look, if you want to put yourself at risk to guarantee someone who is already a risk, you do so to your own folly. Solomon has told us many times here. Now here, he presents two people in particular that you would be a fool to put up a pledge for. The first one is the stranger. The beginning part of the verse there is the stranger. And the reason why you'd be a fool to put up money for the stranger is you don't even know the person. How can you tell if they're going to be a reliable person to pay back their debt? They're a stranger to you. You don't even know them. And so that would be foolish for you to do so. The other one there he, he calls the foreigner. Now some of your versions there will say the foreign woman or the strange woman. And some of your versions will even say the adulteress. And that's what it's referring to here. The strange woman in the sense of you have a wife. Why are you going to somebody else? And so it's referring there to the adulteress. And so he says this, look, if you against counsel, he's already told you not to do this, but against counsel, you put up a pledge for a person you don't know or a person that is immoral and going against their their pledges to another person here, you're setting yourself up for a fall. No wonder those people aren't going to pay their particular debts. Do they sound like people that you should be co-signing loans with? No, they, they don't. I'll, I'll give you the answer there. They're, they're not people that you should be co-signing loans. So again, it's just a practical financial wisdom of being extra careful of who you entangle yourself with financially. And Solomon's given us a number of those already. Now we looked at verse 17, so let's look at 18. It says, plans established by counsel, by wise guidance, plans are established by counsel, by wise guidance, wage war. So if you ever need to make a significant decision, and certainly that varies for everyone of what this, what the decision is, 
But if you ever need to make a really significant decision, Solomon's word of wisdom is to seek wise counsel. And I'll throw this out there, and you've got to hear me out first off. Even if that counsel is in your own mind, and what I mean by that is rather than jumping in and doing something, stopping, thinking, processing, that's good and important. Rather than just jumping in and doing, stop, think through all the potential consequences of your decision before jumping in to action. At the very least, in doing that, you're deliberating the positives and the negatives of something before making a decision. But even better than that is to bring the matter to other people, people whose wisdom you value. Remember earlier, the one probably not running his mouth off? That's the one you should go to and say, hey, can I ask your advice on something? Would you think this through, pray this through, and give me some counsel on this? And ultimately, taking your matter to the Lord so that he might weigh in. As we've learned other places, in the multitude of counselors, there is wisdom and there is safety. Proverbs eleven fourteen talks about wisdom. Proverbs 24, 6 talks about safety. And so plans and good plans are established by a multitude of counselors. And you'd be wise to seek that counsel. Verse 19, whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets. Therefore, do not associate with a simple babbler. If a person comes to you with some juicy gossip, what should you do? It's an easy one. You can, you can get all ugly in their face. But essentially, you should say, hey, did you tell them this? Or did you talk to them about this? Have they given you permission to share this with me? Or whatever. If somebody comes to you with some juicy gossip about somebody else, I'll say this. You can be pretty sure that if they ever have some juicy gossip about you, they're going to be telling somebody else that information as well. So a gossiper, a slanderer, here it uses this phrase, a revealer of secrets, they, that's exactly what they are. And you know whose secrets they're going to reveal eventually? Yours here, if the opportunity arises. And so your very best bet, if somebody comes to you with some juicy gossip, is to refuse to listen to that person. Now notice what Solomon does here. He says, do not associate with a simple babbler. The idea there, some of the versions use the word flatterer. And the idea there is with many words, they're buttering you up to hear their gossip, to accept their gossip. So they're coming to you and they're saying, look, I, I don't know who to tell with this, but I know I could tell you. You're, such a, you're so wise, you're so smart, you'll probably be able to give me such good wisdom here. And I know that you're a person of prayer. And as a person of prayer, you'll take this matter and you'll go to the Lord. And so they're buttering you up. They're flattering you. They're babbling on and on and on about how wonderful you are and how trustworthy you are. When you hear that, your response should be, yeah, I got to go. I'm sorry, I don't have time for you. I don't like you anymore. Or no, you can't, you don't have to say that. But essentially it's, look, man, I don't, I don't want to receive it because pretty soon the gospel, if you do that, the gospel will move on. And if other people do that, they'll move on. And if other people will move on, they'll go to somebody else's church and be a problem over there. I'm just kidding, or or whatever. But soon they'll move out of your life, and you'll be the happier for that here. You'll be healthier for it. And the body of believers will be protected. And certainly the body of people that are in your little people group will be as well. And so this is one more instance. I'm ending with this. One more instance that comes back to the idea of personal integrity. Personal integrity, it seems to be the theme of this particular chapter. Because what personal integrity does, why it's so important, is it reveals a man's heart condition. 
And that's what Solomon's been getting at through this study in Proverbs here, is where your, where's your heart? Out of the heart, the man speaks. Out of the heart, the man acts. What's going on with your heart? And if your heart is right and seeking to be right, as the Lord enables you to do so, then the decisions that you make and the ways that you interact with others is going to be changed as well. The heart reveals, uh, the life reveals that what's going on in the heart. And I wanted to end with this. This is from C.S. Lewis. Some of you have probably read this book. It's called Mere Christianity. It's one of his classic works. And he comments on the importance of the transformation of the heart. Because oftentimes, what do we focus on? The outward deeds. Just make sure everything is outward. If our kids, just make sure everything is outward, we're good to go. Not the case. In our own lives, our children's lives, the people we're working with, whatever. The key is the heart. Focus in on your heart. So this is what Lewis wrote. He said this. We begin to notice, besides our particular sinful acts, our sinfulness. We begin to be alarmed not only by what we do, but about what we are. Have you been there in your walk with the Lord? I hope you have. All right, that's a sign of growth, not just the things you do, but who you are. Then it goes on. It says, now this may sound rather difficult, so let me try and make it clear. This is Lewis writing. When I come to my evening prayers and I try to reckon up the sins of the day, nine times out of ten, the most obvious one is some sin against love. I've sulked, or I've snapped, or I've sneered, or I've snubbed, or I've stormed. You've done that ever? You people? Yeah, we all done that, right? And the excuse that immediately, Lewis says, springs to my mind, well, the provocation was so sudden and unexpected, I was called off my guard. I didn't have time to collect myself. That's why I was mean to that person. That's why I snapped at that person. Now, then he goes on, and I think this is really good. This gets to the heart of what I want to get to. He says, now, that may be an extenuating circumstance as regards those particular acts. They would obviously be worse if they had been deliberate and premeditated. On the other hand, and this is where he gets to it, surely what a man does when he is taken off his guard is the best evidence of what sort of man he is. Surely what pops out before the man has time to put on his disguise is the truth. And then this very interesting uh, word picture. He says, if there are rats in a cellar, you are most likely to see them if you go in very suddenly. But the suddenness does not create the rats. It only prevents them from hiding. In the same way, the suddenness of the provocation does not make the ill-tempered man. It only shows what an ill-tempered man I am. The rats are always there in the cellar, but if you go in shouting and noisily, they will have taken cover before you switch on the light. And so they, that only reveals. Out of the mouth, the heart speaks. In our actions, the heart is living itself out. And so we ask ourselves then is, who are you really? Who am I really? The one with the mask that I put on, hoping others will see it and think well of me and form good opinions of me? Or am I that same person, whether no one is looking or I'm gathered in front of a multitude of others? The desire of the Lord, we, we, it's all throughout the Bible, certainly so, but I think it's emphasized here in many of the verses is the desire of the Lord is that we would be the same person whether lots are watching or nobody is watching. And living our life that way, that's the way of wisdom. And that's the walking in wisdom, the life that God sees and he honors. And that's the life, as we've been learning, that God blesses. And so this morning, I think it would be helpful for us 
to remind ourselves, commit ourselves afresh, Lord, I want to be the same person in my heart as I am in my actions. I want those two things to match up. Lord, I want to be the same person if nobody is watching or if the whole world is watching. I want to be a person who walks in integrity. That's what I want for my life. I hope that's what you want as well. Let me pray for us. And would you pray as well that the Lord will just speak to your heart and you'll commit yourself to him if uh, he leads. Lord, we, uh, we thank you for that reality. Lord, we thank you that even in making a commitment right now, it's not in our own strength, but it's sort of this commitment of, you know what, Lord, as you enable and as you lead, I want to respond in obedience and say yes and walk in your ways. Again, whether I'm all by myself and nobody would ever know, you'll know, and I want to be in a right place before you. And so, Lord, I, I just pray for us, Lord, that uh, the condition of our hearts, that you would use your word from our study now as well as as we go to really just shine a spotlight into areas that may need to uh, further be brought into refinement. Lord, brought, laid down on your altar, Lord, as we are, that living sacrifice, that we would place it there and say, all right, you know what, Lord, this is not of you. It's not pleasing to you, and I don't want it anymore in my life. And Father, I believe as we continue to do that in our walks with you, moment by moment, day by day, you'll change us more and more to the image of your Son. And so, Lord, uh, we want to abide in you. We want to find our strength in you. We want to look more like you as you change us. And we ask you to do that work in Jesus' great name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.